0: Thank you for joining us in our study of the book of Genesis, entitled, The Origin of Reason. Now we're going to take a look at day two of creation, and we're going to see that reading in Genesis 1, 6 through 8, that God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. Now, as we read this, we must not get caught up in the story and bypass the glaring lessons that we're to learn. There's a lot of things packed into this as we consider it. What can I learn from this passage? What is God telling us? What is being described here? God is not using Genesis as a means of telling us a nice story with metaphors and symbolism as we sit in a a circle with our legs crossed. Contrary to liberal progressive theology, Adam and Eve were real people, and the earth was truly created in seven literal 24-hour days. Life began in Genesis, and here we have much to learn and to incorporate, which we can't dismiss. God is not treating us like a bunch of children. He's feeding us meat as mature people, so let's pull up to the table and eat a healthy meal. Let's see what we can learn. There's two types of water that are mentioned here, two. The water on the earth and the water in the heaven. The upper waters were separated from the lower waters. The higher waters were called the firmament or heaven. Water throughout the Bible refers to several things, but in particular, it symbolizes life. Jesus told us he would give us the living water in John four ten through 14. He said drink of the water that springs up into eternal life. So we have a picture here of two types of life, earthly and heavenly. One we see and experience on a daily basis. The other is invisible to us, though it's just as real as the earthly life. There is an earthly kingdom, and then there is a heavenly kingdom. Without the invisible, the visible would not be sustained. If it does not rain, we lose our water supply. When the hydrological cycle gets interrupted, drought occurs, vegetation dies, causing food supplies to quickly disappear, animal life to begin to become somewhat violent and desperate as they search for food, and it causes man to suffer greatly. We must consider that the human body is 65% water. We cannot survive without water. We know that. But water's not something we see that much of, to be honest. We, We don't see the rain until it appears. It's there, but we just don't see it yet, right? Now, I grew up in Tennessee, a landlocked state. The four major cities in Tennessee, Chattanooga, Memphis, Nashville, and Knoxville, are all built alongside rivers, the Tennessee River, the Cumberland River, and the mighty Mississippi River. Now why were they built along rivers? Because the settlements needed a constant supply of water in order to sustain life, and water symbolizes life. The two types of water that are pictured here in Genesis is earthly and heavenly, and both types of water are real and they're being experienced by all living souls on the face of the earth. It rains on the just and the unjust alike. The heavens send down rain, and the earth provides a source of water, and people drink water. So what do we learn? God makes provision for us all. God is good. He's incomparable in his forethought and his provisions, that he would provide for the lost and the righteous, the saved and the unsaved, the heathen and the saint, His creation is impeccable. His foresight is unbelievable. And his mechanics are beyond comprehension. And his mercy is bestowed on all of his creation. Why all of this? Why did he do all of this? What does it show us? And what does it teach us? It teaches us a fundamental lesson. That God is good. God provides for his creation. He remembers you. He knows your name. And he thinks of you the creator of all that we know is considerate of you. His thoughts are toward you for your good. He's provided for your needs. Whether you believe in him, whether you reject him, hate him, or ignore him, he still has provided for your needs. Now that to me is quite a task. The God that we discover in the book of Genesis is good beyond all measure. And his goodness is not in response to your reaction to him. His goodness was determined before man ever appeared on the scene. God is good. And this should lead us to want to know him more. The provisions that he has made should cause us even to say amazing. Even the hardest heart to say amazing. Just look and see how good God is. So God created day two by separating the waters to the heavens and on the earth. And we see his goodness. Then in day three... In verses 9 through 13 we see the land. Keep in mind that we're seeing here what we're seeing is the first time manifestation of God. In chapter 1 of Genesis we're being introduced to the great I am that Moses met on Mount Oreb. What God is doing in creation displays to us in a clear fashion what he is like, his attributes, and his nature. We see the reality of his character in action. We see what he has made in we begin to assimilate the magnitude of what's being done. The earth is being created. The quality, the foresight, the execution of it. This gives us insight into the character of the master architect and a great understanding and appreciation of all that he's done. When I was younger, I was involved in new home construction. Part of my job required that I studied various builders and multiple methods of construction. I visited numerous new home subdivisions and toured various new homes in multiple price ranges. Each of the homes was very revealing. In some, the kitchen was not so appealing. It offered a basic cabinetry, linoleum flooring, and simple countertops, and maybe a double bowl stainless steel sink. The fixtures were inexpensive, and the windows were low quality. The carpet was lightweight and low cost, and even the shingles gave gave evidence of affordability. What does this tell you about the home? It was built for a particular individual. It was built to satisfy the need of a particular buyer one could afford a particular payment. And this is a common practice in the new home markets nationwide. You build in order to fill a need for a buyer's budget. You don't go into rural areas and build multi-million dollar homes. If you do this, you will bankrupt real quick. Yet even buyers in the affordable market consider quality to be very important. If the quality is substantial and high, even in the lower end houses, the builder earns a reputable name and he does well. The quality of construction tells a great deal about the builder. Mistakes happen. That's understood. But finding them throughout the home tells me the builder has a personal income in mind and not the customer's well-being. The issue that arises in the months to come will be a headache for the contractor and, of course, for the customer. He'll have to come and repair his errors, which I will assure you he'll be slow to do. How can I say this? Well, look at what he did when he had the opportunity to do it right the first time. He's telling me what he's going to do in the future, and how he will act when there's no money involved. Warranty work costs the builder, not the customer. The contractor will be slow to return and to repair. I can assure you that this will be the case. Look at the finish. Look at the final touches. Some things are left undone, and the overall quality of workmanship is lacking. The paint jobs are not what it should be. You used a lot of water in the bucket when you painted it. It met the basic requirements, if that's all that matters. If you know the area, you can ask around about the contractor and find out who built the house, and that will tell you a great deal. He's developed a reputation. He's earned it. And what we do then and how we respond proclaims a great deal about the character of that builder. Now I say all this to compare this to how the earth was created. The earth speaks to us about the God who made it. It reveals his greatness. It tells of his unbelievable ability and his intentions. Look at the detail. Study the minutiae. Look deeply into the details and ask questions. Why does a heartbeat continue to beat? Why does it last so long? Why does an eye see? How does it see? We watch the trees change colors and we're amazed by the incredible blend of colors. A scientist can tell me how this is all done but he can't tell me the why. It's a feast for the eyes and it brings a real sense of inspiration to the mind. Why have things developed in the way they've developed? for no reason? This is where science leaves us. They subtract God from their consideration. These things are just random happenings that occur, we're being told, and our children are being taught in our schools. There's no real meaning behind all of this other than the meaning we assign to it. This is what is known as a fatalistic view of creation. It's all absurd, and actually it really has no meaning. This is existentialism in its basic form. You and I have to seek to find meaning. So, throughout the centuries, men have sought for a purpose and a meaning. They ask why, and they don't have the answers. The secular world has nothing to offer them, it's just an existence. Scripture eliminates these questions and satisfies the core question of the soul. Why is all this here? It's a logical and a fair question. The inquiring mind of a man demands an answer, but God provides us with a concise answer. The how, we can study, research, and discover. The why is what mystifies us. But God satisfies us while men confuse us. God tells us he has given us all things richly to enjoy in 1 Timothy 6.17. Did he have to do anything that he has done? No, he didn't. There were no code requirements he had to meet, so why did he even attempt this? It gives us a visible understanding of the invisible God. We see what he's done and we enjoy all he has given. Go see Niagara Falls and how God is great in his majesty. Why should he create something so mighty and beautiful? Walk the alpine path and see the snow-capped beauty God has made for all mankind to see. These things bathe the eyes in wonder and fill the heart, the spirit, and the soul with awe and inspiration. Folliot-Pierpont wrote in response to considering the beauty and the majesty of the world around him. He said, for the beauty of the earth, For the beauty of the skies, for the love which from our birth over all around us lies. Christ our God to thee we raise, this our sacrifice of praise. God uses his astonishing creativity to show us the basic principles of life while simultaneously revealing to us his wonder and his majesty. In Genesis 9-13, through the waters are gathered into one place and the dry ground appeared. Water, as we mentioned earlier, represents life. Now, out of that life comes the place and the ability to produce fruit. Man has been given the ability to be fruitful. God has provided us a place and an opportunity. What we first saw as a formless and void, covered in darkness place is in the process of being filled with provisions that can sustain a fruitful life, a place filled with opportunity. There was water and there was land, fruit and vegetation. Something's being prepared. We can be consumed with all that's being done, and that's understandable. And what we must not lose sight of is the God who's doing all this. And he's doing it of his own initiative, of his own accord. He's designing and building by his own design. Sovereign, powerful, unabated, unrestrained, God moves, unhindered, his will to perform. His creation is expanding and growing. The formless void The darkness has now become land, covered with vegetation, and sustained with life-giving water, with light and darkness. God takes nothing, literally, and creates something. He takes a man, broken, fallen, given over to darkness. A man who is filled with darkness and the depth of sadness, and he speaks to him. He pours on him the water of his word. He points him to Christ, the living water. He speaks to his heart, and he says, let there be light. And he shows the sacrifice of Christ, who is himself the light of life. Now hear this. We have a chance. No matter how dark things are getting around us, we have the opportunity to know life. It's not over. This thing that was without form and void and covered in darkness, God develops into something so beautiful and filled with wonder that it can't be described. God speaks and all of this is done. God speaks and there is light. God is moving to form within us a hope where before there existed none. He gives us life. And this we'll begin to understand more as we consider the origin of Reason. I want to thank you very much for participating in this study and I'm glad that you've joined us and I hope that you continue as we continue through the study of Genesis to understand the origin of reason. Thank you very much.